Let me just really quickly start where we started last Sunday, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 19 to 23. Having lost all sensitivity. um, That's what we... That's where we spent a lot of our time last week. This idea of becoming insensitive, the fear of becoming, my fear of becoming insensitive. There's another version that says like becoming spiritual, spiritual apathy. You've you've come to a place of being of spiritual apathy. You become callous. There's another version that talks about being become callous. None of your fingers. People that learn guitar probably know this better than than me, but your fingers become callous, you lose feeling, you become numb. And, uh, and so that's what, Paul's ta- that's what Paul's talking about here. You become numb. You've lost, you've lost your sensitivity. You've given, your, uh, you've given yourself over to every kind of impurity. That is, however, not the way. You did not come to know Christ that way, verse 20 says. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught that this former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I continue to be challenged by those verses. And Paul continues. Paul, Paul is on a he's on a roll here. He's on a roll, and he he begins to challenge them. Come on, church, be imitators, be imitators of God. You were created to be like Him in righteousness and holiness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, just as He has been kind and compassionate to you. Imitate Him as His dearly loved children. And he goes on and he goes on. And in verse 14 of chapter 5, he's, wake up. You that have become, that have lost sensitivity, become numb. You've got stuck along the way. You become indifferent. Come on, wake up. Remember who you are. Remember the, the new self. You were to take off the old ways, the old ways of thinking, those old patterns of thought and put on a new self which is created to be like him. So come on, church, be imitators of me. Love as I have loved. Be extravagant in your love as I have been. Be forgiving as I have been to you. Be merciful as I have been to you. Imitate this way. Imitate this way as his dearly loved children. That's who you are. His dearly loved children. Come on, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And even just as we consider this 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 week, I'm longing that this is becomes this becomes a, a daily, weekly challenge for me. But in this week of of uh, of all that goes on in our communities to be something of the Holy Spirit's sensitivity would come on us again and to be just like him, imitators as his dearly loved children. And as we wake and as we get up, Christ will shine on us. 
last week I uh, I want to continue to, to to use some of the language that that I used last Sunday. I want to continue to to use this language of repentance, repenting f- for comfortable, casual, cautious Christianity. And I love it whenever whenever throughout the week that people engage with what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. I don't love it because it it's it does my it's good for the ego. I, I hope I don't do it for that reason. I do it because I, because I need other people to be on this journey with me. Because I know for me, my default, I will, my default. If I'm not doing this on, on a journey, if I'm not doing this in relationships with people, my default, I will run back to caution. I will default back to comfort. I'll default back to where it's to where it's uh, just where it's easier and it's a bit more casual. I'll default back. So when I hear that people are engaging with this, I'm like, yes. Yes, there's people that are going to pull me out of this. There's people that are engaging with this that, will, that are going to help me to continue to have my mind renewed, my mind changed. That's what repentance is. It just will be an about turn in our minds. We just think completely different. And so I need people on the journey with me to, to, to help me to continue to think differently when it comes to, to wanting to run for comfort or to, to set off in the place of caution, remaining casual. And so I continue to, to, to challenge you with that. We continue to be a people that would repent for comfortable, casual, cautious Christianity. You continue to go back into the story. David's talking about being back in the book of Matthew. I found myself back in the gospel of John. And again, just like David has said, you can, we can skip over those bits that we've, where we've always been. I'm so familiar with that, those first that first, those first, 10, first 18 verses, I could pretty much, uh, I could pretty much repeat it by heart. Uh, but actually, it's been in some of those places this week where I've found such, such joy and actually such challenge, because I'm aware that as I see the the call and the invitation of Jesus, I become aware how how often we have, how it looks on the surface, it really does seem that we have drifted far from the radical way of Jesus. I continue then to come repenting for for cautious, for cautious living because it's so far removed from the radical way of Jesus. And I was stopped in my tracks over the last couple of days because we uh, we are well schooled. I would say many of us in this room are we are familiar with the church setting. We are familiar with what the Bible says and. In many parts of it, I think for most of us in the room, we are well schooled in who misses out in the kingdom. We're well schooled at the adulterers and the idolaters and the swindlers and the and all of that. We're well schooled. We're well trained. We're well rehearsed in who misses out in the kingdom. But whenever we get to Matthew chapter twenty-five, there's something shocks the system. If you have ears to hear, <laughs> hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Because here it, we get a shock to the system and who, who Jesus is saying is at risk of missing out. It's the cautious. And that shocks us. Like, I, I don't know about you, but like that is, we've become, we've become so, we've become so comfortable in our us and them, them over there, 
with their, with their wickedness and their evil deeds. We're well-schooled and well-trained in the verses. We'll know where to go. Ephesians 6 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. We'll know all those places to go to, to say who's missing out. But actually, Jesus wants to tell us, look at the, look at the response he makes to the lazy servant, to the servant who remained cautious, who out of fear hid what had been entrusted to him. And Jesus says, you're missing out. You're missing out in the kingdom. That shocks us. It shocks me, because add onto the list. Add onto the list that you're so well trained in, you're so well schooled in. The cautious miss out too. I uh, spent, spent some part of this week just thinking about uh, in some ways, I think it's part of our inheritance, how the Celtic Christians, um, how from Scripture and from their own experience, uh, how they under, understood God, specifically the Holy Spirit. See, they had come through Scripture and through their experience to realize that God was someone who uh, we would need to pursue rather than subdue. God was someone that we would need to um, pursue rather than subdue. And the term that they used for the Holy Spirit was of a wild goose. A wild goose. I think there's some are, some people are upset by that term. I, I, if you are, I apologize. Blame the Celtic Christians. Two or three hundred years ago, they came up with this this terminology for their understanding of the Holy Spirit, because they recognised the Holy Spirit could not be tamed and it could not be domesticated. And so they turned they termed the Holy Spirit the wild goose. They f- they fully understood when uh, when Jesus says in John chapter three verse eight, the Holy Spirit blows where he wants, he goes where he wants. He's like the wind. Cannot be tamed. Cannot be domesticated. That was their understanding of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I just continued to consider that. Wild goose, the unpredictability of the wild goose. The wild goose that would disturb the status quo. The wild goose that would go on a wild adventure. And that is the sort of life that the, that is the sort of life that, that our that the Celtic Christians got involved in two or three hundred years ago, right on this land. They get caught up by the wild goose caught up by one that they knew they could not domesticate they knew they could not tame they knew it was unpredictable would disturb the, the status quo but while they were he set people on an adventure with God he set people on an adventure with God and so I've, I've just just been mulling over mulling over that and um, and David sent a, David sent a message during the week I David, if you want, if there's any more, if you want to say anything more about that idea of trading, come up and take the microphone for a few minutes. But I, David, sent a message about a book that he's been reading and talking about about uh, about trading, what we trade. And as I thought, I just continue to think about the about this life, this new adventure with God. It is going to involve us trading something. It's going to involve us trading our worldly security for radical obedience 
I want to get to the place where that's, that's what I'm trading. God, this is what, this is what I'm laying down to pick up something new. This is a transfer that I'm wanting to make here. I'm wanting to lay down worldly security for radical obedience. I'm wanting to lay down judgment for mercy. That's the trade that I'm wanting to get involved in. I'm wanting to, to, to trade judgment for mercy. I'm wanting ultimately to trade, to trade his life for mine. I've been thinking about it, especially on the 4th of July, because I wanted to trade my independence for dependence. Too often that has not been my experience. Dependence, living a life of dependence, often has not been in my experience. And too often as I consider the church, as I consider the church, as I consider my, my own relationship with Jesus, so often it's, it's not dependent. It can so often be independent. And I've just, <laughs> as cheesy as it may sound, I just tried on the 4th of July just to try and celebrate Dependence Day. <laughs> Oh, gee, Holy Spirit, I just want to come fresh, but the fresh dependence on you. I want to mark that day, but I want to flip. I need to mark every day. I want to mark, wake up every day and mark it the same. God, I'm waking it up today and I'm celebrating Dependence Day. Celebrating, just throw myself afresh on you, getting caught up in the wind of your spirit. Not going to try and domesticate you or tame you or fit you into the status quo, but I'm going to get, I'm going to, allow you to set me on this same adventure, this new adventure with God that those before us have, have went on. When Matt was with us a couple of weeks ago um, from South Africa, he, he brought us to John chapter 20 and he was speaking about the peace of God. And continue to, it's one of those verses that I will reflect on often is John 20 verse 21. That's when Jesus says, when Jesus comes and says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. A really important verse for us to, to memorize. Really important verse for us to keep really close. Stick it on your fridge. Stick it somewhere. Write it wherever you need to write it. Put it on the steering wheel of your car. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And as I've said, back into the Gospel of John this week, feeling like I've become really familiar, but I think it's because John 20, verse 21, has been in, is somewhere in the back of my mind. And so when I, when I go to John chapter 3, and I see Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says, the one who God sends speaks the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without limits. The one whom God sends speaks the words of God and he gives the spirit without limits. And so that with, with me listening, with me hearing that, we have the joy, we have the joy of having this. We have the joy of, of, of having the, the heart and the longing of Jesus in John 20. And so then it affects, and it really affects us when we go back to John chapter three because we're, we're coming with information that maybe these guys didn't know. We have the joy of going back. We have the joy of going back post-resurrection, post-ascension and saying, wow, Jesus is saying that the same way that he was sent, he is sending us. And so we are being sent. We are being sent with the words 
of God who gives the spirit without limit. Like that's, that's what's available for us. That's what is on offer for us who are following Jesus and are ones who have been sent, which includes all of us. Any of you in this room that have said yes to Jesus, this is what, you, in the same way that the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is sending you the same way with the very words of God to speak and he gives the spirit without limits. And, I, and, I, and I'm just, I just continue to be stunned by this. I continue to be stunned that we are the ones that carry the words of God. We we carry the words of God and we have the mind of Christ. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We, we carry the words of God and we have the mind of Christ. The problem is we don't believe it. The problem is that we, we, we just too often don't believe that that's true. And that's why something needs to take place in our minds. There needs to be a renewing of our minds. There needs to be a repenting of of some of that stuff that we have refused to believe. There is such a gap between the life that we are living and the life that Jesus has offered. And I'm doing my best to close that gap. There's times where I feel like I've been, as I shared uh, last Sunday, there's times where that's, that's the gap that I feel like, that, that all of us, I suppose, are in that gap. But some of us maybe are stuck, and that's what we, the language we used last Sunday. Some of us have become maybe stuck in that in that in-between. In that in-between of the way that we are living and the life that Jesus offered. We've got stuck along the way. We've maybe become indifferent along the way. Maybe lost feeling. We've maybe become insensitive. We've maybe become numb along the way. And I'm desperate for the for the church for the church to look more like the kingdom. And I think when I long for that and when I pray for that, I think I'm really echoing the prayer in the heart of Jesus. I think Jesus is desperate for the, king, for the church to look more like the kingdom. See, we sang, we sang, or I think it was the last song that we sang, we know that we are more than conquerors. And there's another one of those moments where I step back almost from, from the, <laughs> the congregational singing for a moment and just like, Jesus, am I singing this because it's on the screen and that's what we do? Jesus, am I singing this because it's in the Bible and, the, and, and that's a verse that we love to quote? Or am I singing this because that is my experience? That is my understanding of who I am. That is my understanding of who each one of these people that I have the joy of, of being able to sing this along with this morning. That's who they are. That's the gap between how we are living, the life that we are living and the life Jesus offered. It was almost like that was another one of those moments where it's like, Jesus, is that the life that I am? Um, am I living more than a conqueror? We know that we are more than a conqueror. Do I, do, I, do I know this because I've read it? Or do I know this because it's my experience? Again, I'm longing for the gap to close. I'm longing for the gap that closes between the life that I'm living and the life that Jesus offered. And continuing to ask the question, God, where is it that I've become stuck along the way? Where is it that I've become indifferent along the way? I read a quote this week and 
I shared it with a few people. I'd said that your town, and again, just find myself as a praying for Rich Hill. Become, come across this quote and it says, your town should look different because you used what God put in your hand for the kingdom. It keeps taking me back to the parable of the talents. I keep finding myself going back to Matthew 25 and this place should look different because, like, not even just, not just, it is because you're here, but it's because you have used what God has put in your hand for the kingdom. And I almost want to speak that out over every other church that's in Rich Hill. The Elam and the Presbyterian and the Church of Ireland and the Methodists and the Quakers and the chapel. This, guys, our town should look different because we, have, we are using what God has put in our hand for the sake of the kingdom. It has to look different. And so I'm continuing to ask, and I'm, and I'm going through Scripture. I'm going through the, st- the story of the disciples. I'm trying to pick up where it was that they got stuck along the way. Where was the moments that they, that they got stuck between the life that they were living and the life that Jesus offered? And it was in Mark chapter 9 this week. Mark chapter 9 is the, the beginning of it is the incredible story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And part of me would love to talk about that this morning. It is phenomenal. It is a phenomenal story. But this is what happens whenever Jesus and Peter, James, and John came down the mountain. They came down and they saw the large crowd. And they seen the disciples. Like think of the moment that they just experienced on this mountaintop. And they come down, I'm sure, enthused, ready to get going. And they come and they see the disciples arguing with the religious leaders. They come and they see the disciples arguing with the religious leaders. Jesus has to continue to reveal to them the life that he is offering to them. The authority that he is is entrusting to them. And yet when he comes down from that mountain experience, he finds them arguing about religion. And I'm reading through Mark chapter 9. I'm reading through those, those few verses from 14 right through. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, that's the place that I get stuck along the way. There are moments that I get stuck because I, ended up, I end up, can so easily end up arguing about religion and what is my preferences and what is my interpretation. All along, Jesus is expecting me to release the kingdom. And Jesus was, he was ticked off. Because he came down and he's seen them arguing about religion. And he's like, guys, come on. How long am I going to have to be here? How long am I going to have to be around? This is what what I'm expecting from you. I have empowered you. I have entrusted you. I've breathed my spirit upon you. I've given you my peace. I've allowed you to walk with me to experience this so that you'll be able to do the same thing. And you've got stuck arguing about religion whenever I have entrusted you to release the kingdom. Jesus' expectation it was that this little boy who was, who was foaming, gnashing his teeth and becoming rigid, and something was seizing him. I think it grieved Jesus that he seen his disciples arguing about religion when his expectation was that he would release peace, that they would release joy, that they would release healing. 
You know, and that's part of my journey. That's part of my journey. of. And there's things that I have done this week. There's things that I've done this week where social media is concerned that I have avoided every, I have blocked out every religious fundamental voice on, as best as I could, on my Twitter feed. And, I, and I'm, still, like, I'm still searching myself to see the motivations why I go and get drawn in to the fights and the arguments about religion. I get drawn into it. And I find myself acting differently. I find myself thinking differently because I've, because I've been drawn to the argument. I've been drawn to the fight. I've been drawn to the things that are secondary, but I get sucked into it somehow. And I had to block out every one of those voices because the expectation that Jesus has is not that I would is not that I would argue about religion and in my head I think I, I think I'm doing Jesus a favor by by uh, by defending him or defending and don't hear me saying that there's not a place for apologetics and all of that sort of stuff but for me it's like I need to get out of this I need to get out of this environment because the expectation that Jesus has on me is to release the kingdom is to be a person that will be a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Like, not, not just uh, a peace carrier, a peace bringer, but to make peace. That's different. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so often, so often the disciples did things because it went against their expectation. Like the time the children were trying to get in and around Jesus so that he could bless them, the disciples were, no, get away. This, is, this does not fit in with the religious structure. This does not fit in with the institution that we're establishing here. This does not meet our expectations. And so they were dismissing all of these all of these people and all of these occasions because it didn't meet their expectation. And Jesus continually have to come along and say, guys, stop it. Stop it. Stop making it hard for people to enter the kingdom. Stop dismissing things and stop dismissing people because it's going against your expectation. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 says that We get the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating and drinking or these other trivial matters. It is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, it's not about all the trivial things. It's not about getting sucked in by what should we eat and what should we not eat. What law should we create? What law should be established and what shouldn't be? It's not about, the kingdom is not about that. The kingdom is about righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. I love this idea of righteousness. Blessed are the righteousness. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter five. There's a paraphrased version of that that says, blessed are those who are waiting for God to set up that which is right. We're waiting for God to make all things right. And the message version of Romans chapter 14 says, 
what God does with your life. This is what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is about what God does with your life as he sets it right. The kingdom is not a matter of trivial matters such as eating and drinking. It's a matter of your life being set right with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Paul begins to understand that. And I, I love Luke chapter 10. Because as Jesus, at the start of Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent the 72 out. And again, there's another preaching, the instructions that he sends them out with. He sends them out, don't be taking, don't be taking any, a bag with you, a purse with you, don't be taking anything. And just go and sit around the table. Sit around the table, allow people to be hospitable towards you. And then declare that the kingdom of God is here. Sometimes we go in with we go in the wrong way around. We go into the environments where people have never experienced love or joy or peace in the Holy Spirit. And we come in preaching. But actually something about the way Jesus sends them out in Luke chapter 10 is very striking to me. Guys, lay everything else, lay everything down. Lay everything down and go. And when you enter a house, sit around the table. Sit around the table, enjoy their hospitality. And as relationship is built, begin to declare the kingdom. Begin to declare the good news of Jesus. But that's not my point. The point is that, that whenever they began to see things happen, when they began to see the sick being healed, they began to see people being set free from the demonic, they began to see all of these incredible things, they came back and reported it to Jesus. And Jesus, it's almost like Jesus turns, turns aside and is like, yes, yes. It says that he's full of joy. He was full of joy and he turned to the Father in the Holy Spirit and says, Father, thank you that you have revealed this to little children. Thank you that you have made this known. Thank you that they're getting this. And I love that moment because so often they've got it wrong. So often they've got it wrong and Jesus never, he, he, never, he never condemns. He never kicks them out. He never scraps them and starts again with another 12. He continues on the journey with them. I think that is beautiful. I think it's stunning the way that Jesus is, the way that Jesus builds relationships, the way that he, that he leads people. He meets them, as I said last week, at the water's edge, in their place of comfort, in their place of caution. And he meets them there and he begins to teach them and then he takes them out deeper. And I love that, that Jesus is full of joy in this moment and turns to the Father and says, Father, yes, it's a win. They've got it. They're getting this. This is beginning to make sense. They're beginning to recognize who they are. They're beginning to believe the authority that I have entrusted to them. They're beginning to operate in that. And Jesus is full of joy in that moment. He begins to see them. It's taken a while, but he begins to see them living with the authority that he had entrusted to them. And I think Jesus is doing the same for us. He is not going to dismiss us because we don't get it, but he is desperate that we would begin to close that gap between the life that we are living and the life that he uh, offers. He's longing for us to get stuck out of those, get rid of those old religious mindsets, those religious arguments that cause us to be stuck. 
desperate for us just to be really kind and, and, and gentle and loving towards people. And as we do that, we begin to see the kingdom come in the most beautiful, natural, organic ways. See, I think the early church was really, was really attractive to outsiders. See, the early church grew rapidly without, without their well-fashioned presentations, their programs, whatever all those other P's are that go along with that little preach. But they weren't, weren't relying on any of that. They were, attracting, they were attracting outsiders because they lived like the truth was true. Sounds Irish enough, doesn't it? They lived like the truth was true. See, they're radical. Uh, again, like just last night, reading again in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, these guys were radically loving each other, radically serving one another. And the truth is that the most effective method of evangelism is still true, as true today as it was back then. Unity and love. God cannot help but bless. He cannot help but command that blessing will come when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. See, he, he said, Jesus said in John 13, verses that I think most of us will be familiar with. If you want the world to see who I am, if you want the world to experience something of the kingdom breaking in, it's in how you love one another. And we get an insight into how the early church loved each other. They counted nothing as their own and laid everything down at the disciples' feet. Nothing was their own. Radically serving one another, radically loving one another, and that is the thing that attracted the outsiders. And somehow that is where we've got stuck along the way too. This, this idea of, of consumer Christianity, this idea of individual, individually following Jesus and it was never meant to be that way and unity and love is still the most effective method of evangelism. See, the good news of Jesus is an embodied way of life. It's not just something we put in, put, we put in billboards. It's not something we just shout in microphones or hand out tracks, it's an it's embodied way of life. And it affects everything. See, it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe a gospel. It is hard to believe good news that leaves its bearers unchanged. Really hard to believe that this is true. So hard to believe that it's true if, it, if we are left unchanged by it. And with that in mind, of just again insight into like some of the things that I just be thinking about from week to week, and this week I'm aware that belief is something that we hold. I can't remember where I read it; it's not my line. Belief is something that we hold, and conviction is something that holds us. Conviction is something that holds us. See, again, as I go about my week, and I try to examine it throughout, throughout the week as best as I can, that I can believe all the right things. I can think all the right things. I can uh, think all the right things, do all the right things, but still not be imitating the way of Jesus. Something about a conviction that, that holds me. And, and Paul, I think, gets this. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 
Um, that part where he talks about, I count everything as loss. I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. All those other things that I've gained, I count them as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to knowing him. Everything else counts as rubbish. And and as as he goes on, I think it's in verse 12, he says, I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that which Christ has taken hold of me. And I love again that Paul, as the guys have led us to songs that bring us back to the cross. As I lay this morning, I was thinking, Jesus, please, please don't let us diminish what you accomplished on the cross. Please don't let us step away from what has been promised, what has been made available because of what you've done on the cross. See, it was the cross that defined Paul. He wanted to preach nothing else but but Christ and Christ crucified. And I think it was in looking to the cross and the radical love, the radical nature of Jesus that was like, I want, that's how I want to live. That's how I want to be impacted by this gospel that has been entrusted to me. I I want to take hold of it. I want to take hold of it in the same way that Jesus has taken hold of me. The gospel should, this good news, it should affect, it should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. See, again, as I'm reading John chapter one, and I'm trying to read every version that is available, That's what preachers do, isn't it? Find the version that says what you want it to say. But John chapter 1 verse 16 says, Out of his fullness we are fulfilled. And from him we receive grace heaped upon grace. And Jesus is wanting us to live in fullness. He just doesn't want us to know that there is a thing called fullness. He wants us to live in fullness. And in many ways, it's the same promise that was promised to Abraham many years ago. See, the whole thing for Abraham is that he would be, that he would be blessed so that he would be a blessing. Too often I think we forget that. Because we've so we've so created an us versus them that we think that there's something special about us because we're chosen. Abraham was chosen to be blessed in order to be a blessing. And it's the same way. It's the same thing for us. We've been entrusted with something for the sake of for the sake of a lost, broken world. And without extravagant love, the church will never turn the world on its head. It was, it was Acts chapter 17, verse 6, a couple of weeks ago that, that stirred this 
this, this train of thought in me. Because it was spoken over, over Jason and the guys that were part of Jason's household. They were ripped from their homes and says, these guys are causing trouble and turning the world upside down. And we'd be so, so accustomed to our comfort and our caution that that just is not being said about us. Causing no trouble. And I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying the mark of whether you're living for Jesus is that you're ripped out of your homes and called troublemakers. But I am saying he's, it's so countercultural. It's so radical that it needs to stir something. And without extravagant love, without extravagant love, the church will never turn the world on its head. And I love this. Again, I don't know who said it. It will never turn the world on its head without extravagant love. It won't even turn the world's head. It will never turn the world on its head and it will never even turn the world's head. The world will never even turn and look. You're living just exactly the same way as we are. Your priorities are exactly the same as ours. The way you're living, how your marriage looks, the way you parent, your Monday to Friday, nine to five, it looks exactly the same as mine. Without extravagant love, the world is not even going to turn its head. And my fear is that the, the, without this extravagant love, without this surrendering to the radical way of Jesus, that the church would leave the world in exactly the same way as we found it. Like there's a part of that that needs to grip us. There's a part of me, I wrote this down, but this is the first time I've said it out loud and it feels like it's, it feels like it's a bit, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's painful. The thought of us, the church, leaving this world exactly as we found it. And so I suppose my challenge to you today, my challenge to myself is that we would be extravagant with our words of affirmation. We would be extravagant with our kindness. We would be extravagant with our hospitality. We would be extravagant with our generosity in such a way that would cause the world to turn its head. Everywhere Jesus went, the world turns, turned its head and then ultimately Jesus turned it on its head. And this is the authority that he has entrusted to us. This is the way of life that he is offering to us. And I think I'm praying the same prayer as Jesus when I'm longing that the church would look more like the kingdom. That we would know that there'll be moments where we've caused Jesus to turn full of joy and say, yes, Father, they've got it. They know who they are. They know who they are. They're beginning to understand who I have called them to be. They're beginning to understand what the cross has done for them. They're beginning to understand that the cross has revealed that my thoughts toward them will never change. They're beginning to get it. And I'm longing for those moments where my imagination, I see Jesus turn to the Father and say, yes, they're getting it. You have revealed it to them and they're beginning to walk in it. So come, Holy Spirit. Will you uh, awaken in us? Will you cause us to wake up?
cause us to wake up and rise and walk with the light of Christ shining on us. And Father, what we read and what we think about and what we quote from time to time that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us, that the gap between us reading about that and believing it were true would begin to close. Thank you that the disciples, that the early church lived in such a way that they believed the truth was true. Would that be the same for us? Thank you for each person in this room. Thank you for each one that has the Spirit of God alive in them. And we, when we do, there's times where we pray, we, we welcome you. But we also want to acknowledge that you're already here. You're already in us. Cause us to understand that, Jesus. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in us. Amen.